Support for this podcast comes from ODC Dance. The world-class company returns for Dance Downtown, March 27th through the 31st, with two electrifying programs and five works, springing from cartoon, the news, and human connection. ODC.dance slash downtown. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we'll talk about the latest Newsom-DeSantis confrontation after dozens of migrants were flown to Sacramento by the state of Florida. We're going to hear about how those folks are doing and talk about the continuing political and legal fallout from that. And we're also going to talk to Marlene Sanchez, head of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, about how her own experiences with the criminal legal system inform her current work in the ongoing debate over punishment and justice on issues like fentanyl. Very excited for that conversation. But before we bring in our guest guy, Governor Gavin Newsom likes to make national headlines, as you know, and today was no different. He is proposing a constitutional amendment, not here in California, but nationally, would be aimed at bringing some of the same gun control limits we have here or have had before courts knock them down. Uh, We're talking about banning assault weapons nationally, raising the age of purchasing a gun to 21, universal background checks, a firearm purchase waiting period. What do you what what do you put the odds out of this? Well, very low. And I I really do have some tactical questions about this. I mean, assuming in good faith that he's actually wants to, you know, this is not just a pitch to raise money, uh, get his name ID out there, that this is a real effort to, you know, expand uh, policies that we have on gun safety here in California across the country. I really wonder why not use direct democracy? Why not use the initiatives? Because, listen, I understand, you know, wanting to get around the Supreme Court. If there's anything we've learned in the past 10 years, a lot of progressive policies do well on the ballot in red Mm -hmm. states in isolation, Medicaid expansion, minimum wage, criminal justice reform, abortion, as we saw last year. There's examples of these passing in red states. And there are more than a dozen red states where you can use the initiative system the way they're going about it, constitutional convention, what do you need? 34 state legislatures? 34 to agree to it and then to do it and then 38 to agree to the amendment. Yeah. So state there's 20 state legislatures held by Democrats right now. And that this is the place where Republicans have done the most to consolidate power. Right. So this is just an incredible long shot tactically. Although today's Supreme Court decision on redistricting could make some difference in the deep south around legislative lines. But yeah, I think you're right. I mean, clearly... Newsom likes getting national headlines and he probably will for this one. And, you know, I mean, to give him a little credit, I do think that he has in the past seen himself as not just sort of a political but moral leader on things that he was ahead of his time on thinking about gay marriage and look at where we're at now. Um, So we'll see. But it's only like 10 million bucks in that uh, super PAC he's got. So coming up on some fundraising deadlines. Exactly. All right. Well, in another example of the governor going national, we have Tyke Hendricks here. She's our immigration editor at KQED. She's here to discuss the fallout from these flights. We've seen over the past year or so, Texas and Florida, both busing and flying migrants uh, to blue states. And for the first time, 
two flights landed here in California, uh, nearly 20 folks. I, I guess to start with, Taiki, tell us, these are people, like, what is the well-being of this group of migrants? How are they doing? Sure. 36 people, mostly from Venezuela, a few Colombians, Nicaraguans, Mexicans, all of them asylum seekers, Uh came in uh, in the past week in two flights that were arranged by Florida, uh, landed in Sacramento, kind of took people by surprise there. But what we've seen is is this real pulling together of faith-based community organizations and the local government, the state government responding to their needs. <clears throat> I think they set them up in hotel rooms at first. They maybe, um, you know, in in providing them places to live, taking them to the thrift store to get a change of clothes because mm-hmm. some people just had the clothes on their backs. And this real pulling together of these these church groups. And the what they're working on right now is trying to find immigration lawyers for every one of these 36 people. Mm. They were not planning to come to California. They have court dates in places like South Carolina, Chicago. And so um, they will need you know, some some guidance about yeah. how to pursue their, their asylum claims. And then there's the legal aspect of this. And you actually spoke to Attorney General Rob Bonta. What did he have to say about the status of any legal action against the folks who, you know, transported these migrants to California? Right. Well, um, the Attorney General's office has, has definitely launched an investigation. He said they're looking into both possible criminal charges and civil actions. Um Today, his office said we're investigating the promises that were made to the asylum seekers. So what did, you know, whoever uh, contacted them in El Paso and said, hey, come, we're going to put you on this airplane. What were they promising them? The the migrants have told people in Sacramento that they were promised jobs and they got here and were sort of deposited on a on a doorstep at a, at a Catholic office building Um but the other thing the AG is is going to request is is the full unedited version of the video that the state of Florida released, seeming to show these folks um, willingly going and wanting to go to California. But um, yeah, there's a lot that's pretty unclear. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, these are real people, but they're being used as political footballs, Taiki. And it's like, you know, you have Ron DeSantis, who's challenging Donald Trump for the nomination on the Republican side of this presidential run. You have Gavin Newsom, who we've discussed at length, you know, having those national ambitions. And then you have the president being very quiet about all of this. Like, how do you see the politics here on both sides? Sure. Well, for Biden, the politics of immigration, I mean, the Republicans are really trying to make the idea of the border as out of control is sort of their their talking point that they keep hammering on. So when Biden had to lift Title 42 a, a couple of weeks ago, um, he was doing everything in his power to make sure that the border did not look out of control. And he seems to have succeeded, although he's getting a lot of flack from, you know, from Im- immigrants and human rights activists uh, around the legality of some of that. But but yeah, I mean, DeSantis clearly was going for political um, points here, and and it's been an opportunity for Newsom to do the same. And he's been on national TV and really sort of taking the moral high ground about like, look, these are human beings being used as you know political pawns in a in a stunt. Um, so, but I think you know they're both. But he's kind of like you know, posturing, too, because he tweets out this penal code as if he's going to like the state's going to charge Ron DeSantis with with some crime. Yeah. Right. So, 
I mean, we'll have to see where that goes. But uh, he's yeah, he's certainly using it that way. And and I think there's, you know, stoking outrage is something that that both sides are doing and it um, it can serve them well. But it does increase the polarization around these issues and around, you know, people's human lives. And we've seen, you know, Florida officials characterize this as kind of part of a larger devolving of immigration policy, of federal authority over immigration policy. They'll say, look, blue states have become sanctuaries. Us in the red states, we're going to be the enforcers on this. There's obviously a lot of hyperbole there. But what do you make of this dynamic of just state versus state showdowns uh, on this issue? Well, I mean, I think we see that on a lot of issues, you know, abortion or, or many other things, how people are dealing Queer with, rights, with yeah. climate change and right. Um, but a state like California has has made very substantive policies um, to support and include immigrants here and including immigrants who, you know, don't have legal papers. Um but are contributing to the society and the economy and so forth. And Florida is certainly staking out um, different stances. So it's, you know, it's part of this chasm. But, you know, to be clear, immigration law and policy happens at the national level. Right. Um, but, but people and immigrants are incorporated into local communities. And so that's sort of where the rubber meets the road. Well, thank you for coming in. That's Taiki Hendricks, our immigration editor here at KQED. We appreciate you and all your reporting on thank this. Thank you, Taiki. Thanks, guys. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll be joined by, Mar- by Marlene Sanchez. She's the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. Parking at SFO is easy when you book online. You can choose dates and times in advance and secure the best rates to make your departure stress-free. Learn more at flysfo.com parking. Support for KQED Podcasts comes from Star One Credit Union, now offering real-time money movement with instant pay. Make transfers and payments instantly between financial institutions, online or through Star One's mobile app. Star One Credit Union, in your best interest. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We are thrilled to have with us Marlene Sanchez. She's executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and a leading voice in the movement for criminal justice reform and the rights of incarcerated people. Marlene, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. Welcome home to the mission. Yes. Coming back to your roots. So let's talk about that before we get into the work you're doing now. Um, Your early life really brought you to this work. Tell us a little bit about your family and growing up in San Francisco's Mission District. Yeah, so uh, my Marlene Sanchez, executive director of the Ella Baker Center, um, born and raised here in, in La Mision in San Francisco. Um, both my parents actually migrated from, from Mexico and, and met here in the 60s. And um, actually, uh, right around the corner, right here on Harrison Street, back in the 60s, this was uh, factories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so both my parents were factory workers. Mm-hmm. Um, my my mother uh, was actually uh, deported in a, in a work raid um, in the early 80s. Um, and, you know, was was impacted by by that and 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 my father also um, was impacted both by um, both by the criminal justice by immigration and and the criminal justice system and both my parents have actually um, 
have had to kind of uh, break some of those barriers and to to raise our family um, and take care of of us here. And so at the age of nine, I actually was in court and got to witness my father get sentenced to 25 years uh, Mm -hmm. for drug sales. And if we know what was happening in the 80s, the war on drugs and the war on people of color and the war on poor people, um, it's not a surprise that he would get 25 years for possession of drugs in in the 80s and um how long did he serve he served uh, most of his sentence because he was he got time in a federal prison and And, i mean you've spent so much of your career really so much of your life helping young women many of whom facing incarceration talk about your own experience with the criminal legal system coming growing up here yeah, I mean, my my first contact with the with the system was at the age of eleven. I got in a fight at school. Um, it was a, a middle school. I was eleven years old, and I was arrested for um, for getting in a fight and taken to eight fifty Bryan and fingerprinted. And um, they called the gang task force, and was one of my first introductions. I was like, "What is the gang task force?" and had to kind of look it up and and learn for myself and. Um, before I was even involved in gangs, I was already categorized as a gang member at 11 years old. And I mean, at 11 years old, if any kid would get in trouble at school, you would get some support, some counseling. But if you're poor, you're a person of color, um, especially in the 80s, um, in a time where we saw a huge divestment from resources, um, you got punishment and you got incarceration. Um, at the same time, I, I also was able to find community work. I was, in, at the age of 15, got certified to be a community health outreach worker, HIV counselor, um, and was able to go back into the streets and provide resources to folks in the streets and a harm reduction um, practitioner. And before, was, Tell us, though, I know there's a story you've told before about being arrested in 1996 and ending up at Mission Street uh, or Mission Station, police station. And that kind of sparked some of uh, the political work you've done. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, I mean, well, in in '96, I was also I was beat up by the police, um, and organized. A, a, my first action was in front of the mission station. I was able to ask my friends. I was going to Mission High School at the time. I asked my friends to walk out of school and join me at the protest. And actually, Van, who used to run the Yellow Bakers Center, Van, Van Jones, Jones yeah. um, trained us on what to do and what not to do in an action. And um, that was one of my, my first protests. And since then, um, I've been organizing since then and running organizations and, and movements and supporting other leaders um, like myself. And tell us about the Young Women's Development Center, now known as Young Women's Freedom Center, and kind of how you got connected there. Because I've heard you say this before, a lot of young women who may need the help, need the services that places like this provide, are not necessarily going in the phone book or going out and like how do you find that if you're homeless or impoverished or in need yeah yeah i mean till this day i mean it's still true today that you have to go where people are you have to meet people where they are and um, create spaces where people are walking through the doors and finding community and so at the young women's freedom center um, it was for us by us i mean one of the first organizations to be led by for and by young people from the streets Um, there was um, some research done around girls in the street underground street economy that was called out of sight and out of mind and we really were 
out of sight and out of mind and out of sight of service providers, out of sight of um, people making decisions about resources and um, and out of mind in terms of, you know, folks actually investing and thinking of us um, it, it, during that time. And the Young Women's uh, Freedom Center was doing just that. They were creating opportunities, economic opportunities. I got my first job at 15 and I was making eight fifty an hour while my mom was still making four twenty five. Wow. And so what that did is it allowed me to be able to take care of myself and not put myself in situations where I had to choose school over how I was going to eat. And the center has a pretty amazing track record. Yes. I mean, we're talking to you. <laughs> Latifah Simon is now running uh, for Congress. Yes. She was a former leader of that organization. I want to talk about like how you go from that, which is really direct services to people, you know, women often who are homeless, who are you know running away from home, to kind of turning that into political power. Because I think one thing we've seen Ella Baker do, the Young Women's Center, and a lot of groups that's different in recent years is making sure that when there are policy discussions happening, you all are at the table yeah. along with, you know, the other groups that have always been there, the police, the victims groups, you know, the the families. Um, how do you go about that? Like, how do you convince folks who may be coming out of prison and might just want to start their life again to do this work? Yeah, well, it takes very little convincing, I will say. Folks know that they're that the, the person is political, that we have been so impacted by policies, we have been so impacted by by racist policies, that it is th- it, it has been apparent throughout our, our lives. And, um, you know, understanding that our experiences and our stories have context, um, that when I say to you all, you know, you know what was happening in the 80s. What I was saying was that, like, as I was experiencing this, we, the, the country was also experiencing a war on drugs and a war on people. Um, and so I think when you create opportunities for folks to really build with each other and understand that, like, my story is connected to yours and that it is also not by um it's it, it's just not by choice that we end up here sometimes and so i i know that um for many people um there's it's been generations and generations of of incarceration and folks being tracked um in in the juvenile justice foster I feel like care some people system. are just like ask, like waiting for the invitation yes yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So how does that, you know, you're now running uh, the Ella Baker Center, doing a lot more probably advocacy at the state capitol, uh, statewide legislation. How does this all inform, like, how you approach conversations with state lawmakers, your pitches, and, and how you, you know, bring the community you represent with you? Yeah, well, at the Ella Baker Center, we actually have a, a huge base of leaders who are incarcerated and formerly incarcerated. We have a, a what we call the Inside Outside Fellowship, but we are in deep relationship with people people who are experiencing this right now. I understand that my incarceration was years ago. And so I need to make sure that we have people who are experiencing it right now at the table. And so we send in our policy agenda into prisons. We talk to people in the community um, who help inform. And so, yes, I can talk to policymakers about our um, our bills and our ideas, but they, those are also informed by people who are directly impacted by these poli- by policing, by cages, by prisons. And so um, it is important that we are, and not only only 
just extracting information, but we are in deep relationship yeah. with folks. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown on KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with Guy Marzarati. Our guest is Marlene Sanchez, executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. All right. Well, let's get into some of the policy debates that are happening right now. And I want to focus uh, specifically on the fentanyl debate. You guys have been up there um and a lot of folks you work with really pushing back against some of the attempts to bring what you might see as like tough on crime, the war on drugs mm-hmm. back. Um, at the same time, you know, we're in San Francisco. I'm raising my kids here. You go out there. This is a crisis, right? Yes. The yes. the deaths are staggering. The street behavior is just heartbreaking. What do you, before we get into what we shouldn't do, what do you want to see happen here? What do you think is the correct public response to what's happening right now? A public health response um, to what's happening right now. And I, I agree with you. It's, it's a huge issue. This this is um, an issue I really care about personally um, and has impacted my family personally. And so it is something that we have to tackle at the root, um, and we need to take a public health approach to it. If this, and, and we are, we're seeing some of the same um, uh, narratives around tough on crimes that we were seeing in the '90s, and we saw what that did. It it just created more, you know, tougher sentences and just more incarceration, and did not create. Uh, programming um, and opportunities. I would love to see um, more um, uh, supportive housing um, that includes uh, drug treatment. Uh, There's a lot of folks who are actually looking for drug treatment, but find themselves finding so there's so many barriers to getting into drug treatment that by the time folks get in, we've lost people. Um, And so creating opportunities where folks can have that support right away and not in a week or two, we need to create um, uh, drug treatment and supportive housing for folks. And in the short, I mean, those are long-term solutions that I think a lot of advocates would agree with. In the short term, for people wondering, like, you know, what do we do in the next six months to address what we're seeing on the streets? Are there ideas or ways you think, you know, elected officials who are talking a lot about turning this into more punitive approaches that they aren't thinking about? So I I definitely think that there needs to be more um, investment in harm reduction practitioners going out into the streets, folks being trained on how to support people who are uh, dealing with um, substance abuse. And it is a disease. It is a public health issue. And we have not... um, sent out the proper resources to address um, some of that. And I think that there are, San Francisco does have the resources um, to be able to support in the more short term. Um, I know there is folks out there like Glide and other folks who are out in the streets doing work, but not everyone is fully supported in doing that. Yeah. I mean, some of the bills we've seen, I think there's a wide range of of proposals. Um, Some of them are really seeking to, you know, increase penalties and things like that. Some of them feel, I don't know what the word would be, softer, like like this idea that you should read an admonishment to somebody uh, in a courtroom if they are coming up on fentanyl charges, that they could be charged with murder if somebody died as a result of something that they furnished. Why? I feel like people like you see that as a slippery slope. Why is words in a courtroom? What, what would be the harm in something like that? 
I mean, those are, are, are fear tactics. Um, and once you say it in a courtroom, I mean, it definitely will carry some weight. Later. Right, that's the it, fear. It'll, it'll lays be the groundwork. Used. Um, I mean, I remember when they were saying, you know, if you, um, you know, commit this crime, you will get this kind of sentence. I mean, that will happen. And so it isn't just words in a courtroom. It is it is a, a promise of harsher sentences and giving people they're giving people a heads up, but mm-hmm. that's not going to solve the issue. You mentioned kind of the the similarities or the fears that this could turn back into kind of a war on drugs or, you know, situations that we saw in the 90s. Another similarity that we're talking about with Marisa is this idea of a lot of the victims, families, you know, taking an outsized role, driving the conversation, going to hearings uh, in Sacramento with good reason. I mean, these are people that have been through hell because of this uh, crisis. How do you, I guess, approach it from an advocacy standpoint where, you know, you understand the, what they're bringing to the table, but also trying to just put a different voice in front of lawmakers uh, at, in the legislature? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely feel like those families need a space to be heard. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad that they are finding an outlet and finding a space to do that. Um, but they're... You know, other ways that folks could also be empowered to bring about education about this issue. And, um, you know, I know we just recently trained our staff on, like, what to do and how to support people who may be overdosing um, or dealing with this substance, with substance abuse problems or, like, where are the the resources to refer people to. Um, And so I do think figuring out ways to connect with those families because they have been through a lot and, you know, should be you know, be, they should be heard, but making sure that they have all of the information. Yeah. I mean, one thing we've seen some pushback to in San Francisco and other places is a move to really go after drug users, but also lo- more low-level street drug dealers. Um, and I know that there's a lot of concern that some of these, especially young men from Latin America, have essentially been trafficked and are being, you know, not maybe in the same way we think of, you know, sex trafficking where somebody's locked in a room somewhere, but mm-hmm. because of the economic forces, they've kind of been forced into this position. Where does your group stand on then what should happen to the people doing the trafficking? Like the bigger fish, you know, that we talk about who are bringing in fentanyl, but also really facilitating, you know, something beyond that, which is this human cost, um, not just the people using the drugs, but the people kind of being put in this position to sell them. Yeah, we haven't really talked about that piece yet. But um, one of the things that I know that um, was there was an attempt to do is to create a unit that was just going to target Central American young people. Um, I know the DA was planning to do a a unit that was going to just target young people coming from Honduras, um, which is also against the law to target one racial group. Um, And so I I need more information in terms of like who the big fish really are because... um, I, I don't know, but in terms of, you know, the tough on crime and creating these kind of um, units to go after what, you know, the low level um, drug dealers, um, you know, I think we, we have to be more creative. We have to create solutions that are really going to get at the root um, of why these young people feel like that that is, you know, why young people only have this option um, in terms of economic um, sustainability here in the city. 
Before we let you go, we want to ask you about a top priority that your organization is working to get passed at the legislature. You're not just opposing bills. You have uh, a top priority in, in Senate Bill 94, which would basically allow people who have been in, you know, sentenced to prison for life without possibility of parole before 1990 to now petition the court, the parole board uh, for potential release. We're talking about mostly older inmates at this point, but also some really serious crimes. What has made this a top priority for you all this year? Yeah, I mean, the the, the kind of Gregorious sentences we saw that were being uh, dished out in the 90s um, and that this bill really does, it, it's not just going to release people who um, were sentenced to LWOP, LWOP, but it will give the courts some discretion to really just look at the case 25 years later. We know that after 25 years in prison, people, I mean, after a few years in prison, people change. After 25 years, you are a very different person. Um, and so giving people an opportunity to go in front of a judge or to have their case looked at after 25 years um, is one way that we're challenging these these sentences. That's going to be one of watch. Yeah, you hopeful yeah. about that bill? Yeah, we're very hopeful about that bill. Yes. All right. That is Marlene Sanchez. She is the executive director of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. For more politics coverage, you can sign up for our Political Breakdown newsletter authored by the one and only Joe Fitzgerald Rodriguez. That's at kqed.org slash newsletters. And for our current newsletter readers, take a second to fill out our reader survey. You can find a link for that at the top of Thursday's newsletter. Our engineers today are Jim Bennett and Christopher Beal. I'm Guy Marzarati. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next time. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now. A young correctional officer. He said it was the most dangerous prison in California. Forced to make a choice. Fulfill his oath or back his fellow officers. Recognize the badge of my office. I'm Suki Lewis from KQED Podcasts comes on our watch season two, New Folsom. A story about who gets hurt when the system that promises to keep us safe is bent on protecting itself. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.